Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Or 7-9, I think, with Dr. Ziv Cohen. Did I pronounce that correctly? It's actually Z. It's like Steve with a Z. Yeah, I had Z. I, I had two choices and I got it wrong. <laughs> and uh, that's why you're a doctor and I'm not. And so what what you just what Dr. Cohen just asked me was was how did I find you? So as of everyone on this podcast has heard and as I tell the story, they'll roll their eyes. I got into medical school out of college. I decided not to go, but one of my friends. I've known my whole life, uh, became a physician. And recently, he's the smartest guy I've ever met in my life. And I just saw kind of offhand somewhere that he just, I think, started a fellowship in forensic psychiatry or something along those. I had never heard of the term. So whereas like quantum mechanics, I've heard the term, but I don't understand it. I had never actually heard the term forensic psychiatry. And- seeing as how the smartest person I know chose that, I was like, well, that's okay. What is that? So how did I find you? Well, I just Googled top forensic psychiatrists, top one doctor. Oh, I'm in okay. Maryland. So I don't, it doesn't, didn't do it by zip code. Cause you're in New York. Okay. And, uh, well, yeah. nice to know that Google, Google thinks well of me. Um, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. It's so again, it's as, 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 that's kind of how this podcast goes. I throw everything at the wall and I see what sticks. And I got lucky. I emailed one forensic psychiatrist and I got one response. So sweet. how about you introduce yourself, my man? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Steve Cohen. I'm a, as you said, I'm a forensic psychiatrist. Um, I'm based out of New York. I uh, do both clinical psychiatry and forensic psychiatry. So about, you know, I'd say about 70% of my time is really taken up with direct patient care. So I have a busy practice in psychiatry. Um, and then the balance of my time I spend on uh, forensic work. I also do some teaching um, uh, at Wild Cornell Medical College in New York City. And I actually teach forensic psychiatry there uh, to psychiatry residents and also to forensic psychiatry fellows. And then I have a practice in forensic psychiatry. Um, so that's, uh, that's pretty much what I do. Yeah. And it's, it's all fascinating to me. I, um, again, as everyone on this podcast has heard in 2014, I, I, I lost my oldest sibling to suicide and I kind of just, I kind of went crazy after that, which I think is probably the natural response. And long story short, I ended up seeing a psychiatrist in New York. I'll leave that name blank for their own privacy. And then I also, um, and I think part of the reason probably why I got into medical school and why I have done close to 500 podcast episodes is I learned that I had uh, clinical OCD and I actually did it at a uh, Mount Sinai, I did behavioral therapy and my God, if that didn't change my life. But uh, to me, it's, it's just, it's so, it, it, it's so complicated that the mind is so complicated to me. I, right. and so when applying to like medical school and stuff, I wanted to do anesthesiology. I thought pharmacology was really cool. Um, you know, I, I shadowed surgeons and things and that was interesting. And I saw psychiatry and I didn't really understand it. And to me, I kind of looked at it more as like, unless it's pharmacology or psychopharmacology, 
I was like, I can't really grasp it. It doesn't seem like a tangible thing. But then the most pronounced and most effective healthcare I've ever received in my life was in the form of psychiatry. But right, right. I'm rambling like a moron, and I told you I was going to read your resume. Dr. Zeev Cohen, MD, is a clinical assistant prof- professor of psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College and on the medical staff of New York Presbyterian Hospital, both in New York City. You obtained your medical degree from Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. You completed your residency in psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical Center in New York Presbyterian Hospital. And you completed research and clinical fellowships in forensic psychiatry at uh, Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, which is insane. It's, can you, so now if you can't tell, I kind of make up the podcast as I go. What is forensic psychiatry? Sure. So <clears throat> forensic psychiatry is that part of uh, psychiatric work where you're, where you're interfacing with the legal system. So that's what we really do as forensic psychiatrists, and we can do it in a variety of contexts. Often it's in criminal law, so you might be asked to evaluate a criminal defendant. You might be asked to evaluate the defendant for the defense or for the prosecution. Um, And really what you're doing is you're providing a mental health expertise to the legal system in that type of situation. But there are also many situations in civil law. So, for example, lawsuits, uh, people who may claim, for example, workplace uh, harassment, and they may claim that they have psychiatric damages, PTSD, some kind of psychiatric injury from that experience. Uh, You know, you you could have a forensic psychiatrist also involved in evaluations like that. Uh, Forensic psychiatrists will get involved in custody evaluations, uh, in divorce and other family law proceedings. And then because forensic psychiatrists are frequently doing risk assessments, we often get consulted in a variety of settings, even if it doesn't have a direct legal application, to do a risk assessment. So, for example, um, I've done risk assessments for the NYPD or for uh, the school unions, if they have a, a teacher that may have behaved in a way that was unusual or concerning, and they're not sure whether that person is safe to have in the school. So those kinds of evaluations really fall under a fitness for duty evaluation. So I guess the way I like to describe it is that forensic psychiatry is a very broad area, uh, and the focus is usually on uh, evaluating individuals either for the legal setting or for some kind of an organizational setting, for some kind of third party that's hiring you to give your mental health expertise about this particular person. And that the way that's different from regular clinical psychiatry is that in clinical psychiatry, it's just two people. It's you and the psychiatrist. And no one else has to be involved. You know, everything stays in the room. It's 100% confidential. Um, so, and, and really the purpose is treatment. Whereas in forensic psychiatry, it's an evaluation for a third party, whether the courts or an employer or what have you. It's not confidential because you're actually going to evaluate that person and then you're going to produce a report or you may testify in court about that person, which is obviously public. Um, So that's really a difference between clinical psychiatry and forensic psychiatry. Okay. And uh, as as I'm realizing being my own psychiatrist as we do this podcast is I've learned looking back on some episodes, I talk a lot early on when I'm with someone that I think is smarter than me. And that's one thing I've realized. And I don't know if that's a backhanded insult to every 
So that that's not <laughs> bad. But I found individuals such as yourself. I had on some nuclear fusion scientists, and looking back, what I've dug out is like, man, I I just fill the air with a bunch of BS because clearly I don't know. How, so I just realized in hindsight, I rambled for like the first seven minutes. Um, yeah, those are those are good questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now, would you ever do? Would it? Would you ever be able to do something? I mean, obviously, it'd be confidential. Something super high profile, like in my mind, I'm looking. I'm thinking like, I don't know, individuals tasked with like a like nuclear armaments or or high level uh, like CIA or something. Are, is there anything where they have to be? Obviously, there's background checks. Obviously, they do lie detection. Mm-hmm. Is there anything where sort of extreme responsibility would they ever be? Uh, not not so much as like uh you know custody of kids, but rather it would just be another level of screening. You know, did you pass the test? You did well at the interview. Now we got to look at your criminal background. Is there anything like that where I don't know, like if definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. So I mean, on a very kind of basic level, um, you know, not looking at someone with having you know world level responsibility. But for example, if you look at the NYPD. So the NYPD, if you're a candidate for the NYPD, you also, if you you want to get into the NYPD and and, and go into their training, you have to also pass a psychological evaluation. And frequently people are flagged and disqualified based on things that came up in their psychological evaluation. And uh, in that case, I will often get involved in giving a second opinion and doing a more thorough evaluation of that individual to see really whether there is something about their psychological background that makes them unfit uh, or a poor prospect for joining the NYPD. But then even going you know, to more rarefied levels, uh, you know, certainly intelligence organizations do have that capability. Uh, they'll often have, you know, psychiatrists that work with them that are on staff for them uh, who will do fitness for duty evaluations or evaluate somebody if there's a question about their mental health, uh, both when they're candidates and wanting to come into the organization to see whether they're suitable candidates or, while, or you know, in the course of their work, if there's some issue that comes up in the course of their work uh, at that organization. Related to what you're saying, um, the CIA, for example, has a psychiatry division that will actually profile world leaders. Uh, so, for oh, example, oh, oh. to give to give, to give intelligence, you know, let's say to the president about uh, who should we pick, Vladimir Putin, for example. So they'll have people who will, you know, gather as much evidence they can, information that they can about him, which may be not classified. Like he gave an interview, I think, yesterday or the day before. Um, to the American press. So does it look like he gained weight? Does he have a tremor? Is there anything different in the way that he's talking? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And if if there's something that may appear medically related or mental health related, then, you know, they're going to ask the psychiatrist to comment on that. So, 
you know, so, right. So, and so there are many examples of that, particularly world leaders who are, you know, dictators and it's a national security concern for the U S how this person may behave or whether they are ill in some way. Uh, Kim Jong-un, for example, in North, in North Korea would be another good example of someone who would be looked at that way. Yeah. That's insane. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, that would be that would absolutely be of utmost national security, right? It'd, it'd be screening. What are they doing? What are they looking like? Is he sleeping well? It's right. I mean, that was the whole Richard Nixon, the madman theory, right? They had it was Kissinger's. I think they called it. There's a classified program called Furtherance, I think. And it was uh, they actually formed its own classification level. It's called ESI, Extreme Sensitive Intelligence. It's in the book Raven Rock by Garrett Graff all about nuclear uh. bunkers and stuff. Um, it was Kissinger, Nixon, and like four other guys. And the entire idea was they were going to leak or they were going to have on unencrypted channels uh, fabricated concerns that they would voice to generals in, in the Pacific and in Asia about loosely quoting Nixon hates communism so damn much. We don't know what he's going to do if he can't get rid of them in uh, in conventional ways, knowing that the Soviets would listen in and would think Nixon's about to press the button. He's about to wow. he's about to nuke all the the entire thing was fomented, but it was called the madman theory. If he can't predict, basically, if my top men can't predict what I'm doing, neither can the enemy. Ultimately, it, it didn't work at all. But or um the book uh, by the author uh, Norman Oler called Blitzed and it's drugs in the third Reich. Um, it's interesting that the OSS, the precursor to the CIA actually years later declassified. Yeah. They would have moles when, uh, when uh, Hitler would meet with Mussolini and it was, okay, we noticed that Mussolini is really needing his right thigh. What uh, is that? Did he sleep well? Or is it a nervous tick? Hitler, um, Notice how he never puts on his glasses anymore. Well, what is that? Is it Parkinson's? Is it neuro de- neurodegeneracy? What is he using? And then that can have ripples throughout entire world affairs. Now, granted, no one's doing a forensic audit on me because it's just me and my podcast. But versus, you're right. If you're Vladimir Putin talking at the G7 and you've got 5,000 nuclear warheads in your arsenal, that could have more. that could have more weight than that a hundred satellite images, right? Right. Right. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, those are great examples that you gave. And, um, so that would be, I mean, there are not a lot of forensic sketches who are directly involved in that kind of work, but that is, you know, that kind of profiling is something that would, you know, would fall under forensic psychiatry. Now. And again, you, I don't, you wouldn't be able to talk about it. Would you ever be like, uh, hypothetically would you ever be contracted in like corporations where like they have headhunters right and they're you know trying to get new guys would there ever be something like a bezos musk kind of uh kind of you know like they're battling at each other or a bill gates steve jobs i mm-hmm. wonder if those guys those billionaires would ever employ i guess the same thing yeah forensic psychiatrist kind of profile the other leader what are they doing can we predict their movements are they you know if you can sure. find a weak spot and grab a wedge I'll give you one better than that. Okay. Um, well, so, um, you know, I've definitely been um, uh, involved with, you know, financial firms that, for example, want uh, people screened who, who they hire because they're, you know, there may be very sensitive proprietary information that that firm has 
let's say, a hedge fund, for example, with a very specific investment strategy, and they're concerned they don't want to hire people who might try to copy their investment strategy and we, you know, steal it, leave it, and take it. Um, and uh, also in the financial world, I've been uh, involved with financial firms that provide information to investors uh, who have sometimes wanted information about particular people. Um, so in that kind of situation, you might be looking at you know, publicly available information, nothing, you know, secret, but about an important business person, like, uh, I'm just making it up. Um, let's say Bill Gates, Bill Gates is going through a divorce. Now he's not really involved very much as my understanding in the day to day of Microsoft, but if he were, and there was a concern that something might be changing with him, um, then that would be something that could certainly be looked at as well try to give some information, you know, limited as it would be, because we don't have a lot of, you know, the types of information that we really want in forensic psychiatry is not freely publicly available about a lot of these people. In forensic psychiatry, what we like the most is to directly evaluate the person. So, you know, that's that's the best source of information. You can actually sit with the person and do an evaluation. But we also strongly rely on records. So if this person was ever hospitalized psychiatrically or had psychiatric treatment, if we have any other medical records, anything at all about the person, we love talking to collateral sources. So, you know, in regular psychiatry, you don't do much of that. You don't do much of talking to, you can do a little bit, you know, you might talk to the wife of your patient to get more information, but in forensic psychiatry, we will, you know, talk to employers or uh, business partners, um, you know, family members, friends, anyone who can give us an insight. If the person was in the military, we might talk to people who serve with them in the military. So we're really trying to build a three-dimensional profile of this person because we recognize that no one source of information is 100% reliable about, uh, you know, what's what the question that we have at hand. So we try, to, we try to sort of verify and have as many sources as possible that hopefully are converging on uh, one picture of what's going on with this person. Now, sometimes we have to work with incomplete information. And there are some things that on an examination are quite reliable, you know, just directly talking to the person that you may not need or want to get a collateral source for. Um, but that's that speaks to kind of the methodology of forensic psychiatry. That There is a kind of uh, process of uh, pursuing leads my head is spinning with questions. It's one real quick before. Yeah. I was going to say another thing is, uh, ironically enough, the madman theory, when Nixon was ousted, uh, Kissinger actually had a psychiatrist sort of, I guess, informally evaluate, not, not one-on-one. It was just through his actions. And, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but when Kissinger was still president and got on air force one, he lost presidency while before he landed, but before he took off, they actually had the uh, the nuclear football was not on Air Force One, which is the modern symbol of sovereignty. It used to be a crown or the uh, you know the authority of God, but sovereignty now is your ability to to do a, a, a certain tiers of, of nuclear destruction at any given moment. They had it mm. left off the plane while he was still president. There mm. was sort of a a couple hour long semi coup, if you will, but it was based on psychiatry. They said he's drinking a lot. And, you know, does he, is he going to go out with a literal bang? 
Wow, that's fascinating. I did not know that. I, I did not know that. Again, Raven Rock by Garrett Graff. I always plug it. I, I had him on this podcast. It's, it was like the best-selling book in 2019. It's all about it's nuclear bunkers from FDR through Obama. It's an, It'll melt your brain. It's, I wow. always talk about enough of that. This is great. And, you know, another example, though, is the, um, you know, this law that was, uh, I think it was passed by the House. Uh, it was definitely proposed, but I think I think they even passed it. I'm not 100% sure. But it was the Presidential Competency Act, which mm-hmm. was passed in the last few months of the Trump presidency. <laughs> so it was, you know, Nancy Pelosi, I think, sponsored that act. And basically, you know, she was already saying publicly that she thought that Trump was not competent to be president. And so she actually proposed this law to the House, which would establish a presidential commission on competency, and that they would rely on the evidence of psychiatrists and other medical professionals in determining whether the president is actually competent or not. Um, So this was actually proposed, I guess would be a, a formalized version of what you were describing happened with Nixon, where a psychiatrist told Kissinger that Nixon is, you know, drinking too much and not safe with the nuclear football. This would be a formal way to actually, I guess, support the 25th amendment to actually strip him of his powers. Um, but I think there are lots of problems with doing that. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not necessarily a proponent of that law, but sure. you know, we, sure. we can get into that if there's right you want. It has to do a little bit with how forensic psychiatry works. I think that law a little bit misunderstands the role of the true role of forensic psychiatry. It's not like to to put put a short version. It's not like forensic psychiatrists are the voice of God, you know, that we're going to sit there and uh, you know, it's like God telling us whether this person is competent or not. Uh, And so I think there are, there are problems about trying to introduce that. So uh, overtly into politics. Yeah. And and that's kind of what I said earlier was, was when I was interested in medicine, I very much so loved, the concrete i loved unlike most people i loved organic chemistry because mm. if you it's the highest grade i got in college is organic chemistry good for you is because when you it's this turns into this and it's it there's no it's not that's not political science where it's let's let's argue this in the light of this political climate considering a dr- i loved one plus one is two but that is right. with forensic psychiatry is like is that's absolutely right who is defining crazy or competent? What is their, uh, what is their, I guess, bias? You know, are we going to accept that this person is, a, how do we not know that this is my political enemy? How do we not know that there's someone vested in Tommy losing his seat at the podcast? You know, how do I not know Dr. Zeve Cohen's hired by whoever, you know, Bob's podcast. And it's, it does turn into the whole hand of God thing real, real quick. And then I, I do want to jump back to that. But I think it's still in the same light. So if you're telling me this, obviously you know, and we're both, as far as I know, not in classified circles. Mm-hmm. If forensic psychiatry is is a national security, it, it, it's an arm, it's a it's a weapon. It's what it is, is, is in the same way that knowing the crop cycles in Asia is a, is a weapon, right? We bombed, was it in Korea? We bombed dams to flood different things under LeMay, right. which then raises the question, right? is so what's what's intelligence right stealing intelligence spies jason bond or james bond jason Bourne. right then another author i've had on here talks about james jesus angleton the head of counterintelligence under what kennedy and and lbj all about stopping the stealing of information so what is that that question raises is there defensive forensic psychiatry does the presidency come to you and say 
we we're picking apart Putin's speeches at the G7. Does the Biden administration come to a Dr. Zeev Cohen and say, coach me because uh, I am having whatever problems in my marriage. I am worried about uh, something in the homeland that this, that the Russians don't know about, but they can read my body language and they're, they're thinking there's something wrong with the Americans. Can they come to you? Basically, this is a long-winded way of saying, can you teach them a poker face? Look, I, I think that, you know, definitely, you know, psychiatric and psychological expertise are, um, you know, useful to people in a, in a range of professions. And so I think that, I think that your idea is, is just totally brilliant. And I think that, you know, there should be a resident psychiatrist or psychologist in the White House um, or someone that the president easily has access to, to, uh, you know, to think about these kinds of issues. I, I don't think that there's any formal structure for that. Um, you know, it's a great, fascinating question whether any sitting president has actually met with a psychiatrist, uh, you know, during their presidency or not. Um, but I think that, you know, if cops can benefit uh, from, from, you know, psychological expertise, if uh, intelligence organizations can, if courts can, I, you know, I see no reason why a leader couldn't, a political leader. Um, of course, it's a sensitive question, right? Because um, to, to work with a psychiatrist, whether clinically or with a forensic psychiatrist or, or, or organizational psychiatrist, however we want to define it, you have to tell the psychiatrist some things. Yeah. So it involves some uh, self-disclosure. And of course, that creates all kinds of intelligence concerns and everything like that and probably would get has the potential to get people a little bit nervous, you know, uh, that you have somebody who's not an elected official who might have potential influence on the president. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating question, but I mean, I do think your point though, just makes the, you know, makes the argument that if, if people can benefit from psychological expertise in all walks of life, and is it really makes sense to say that there's one person who shouldn't, you know, that a, a yeah. leader, shouldn't uh and you know couldn't could it not have a positive effect on our public life uh if you know we had folks who had that kind of uh, access well it, it's yeah i mean the whole yeah the whole intelligence aspect so i don't think you'd even be able to apply for the job right because that would imply an interest in the power you'd have to be cleared and they might go through a thousand and they find like man dr zeev cohen is the most bipartisan guy <laughs> and they find you and they say your country needs you and you're like who are you <laughs> you know, okay. national security and you're like all right like i mean look there, there is the white house physician right yeah. and um and you know I, I would not be surprised if the white house physician uh doesn't perform that function to some extent uh in terms of counseling people you know doctors do you know regular doctors primary care doctors do provide psychological support psychological counseling of course the white house physician is not going to say you know, uh, Mr. President, you know, that's a nervous tick. And, you know, the other side is going to be able to notice uh, that's probably going to be beyond something that they would talk about. Yeah. Well, yeah, not that they would publicly disclose, but I mean, you got to think like, um, you know, uh, who is the who is the, the admiral of that aircraft carrier that said who publicly said we need to bring it back to port because we're soldiers are dying from coronavirus. But then the military, because he broke the the golden rule in the military, and it's do not discredit leadership or appear weak. So they said, you're relieved of your command because you're giving the enemy, uh, you're giving them intel on, okay, this ship is out of commission. 
the same way at Area 51, Groom Lake, how in the 80s we actually had, uh, and this is in Annie Jacobson's book, Area 51, we actually had uh, we had lasers that would we were timed for when Soviet satellites would come over and they'd beam up blinding images so they couldn't see what was on the runway. Because we, we would bring things into aircraft into hangars like the F-117 Nighthawk, the triangular kind of ugly craft. But in case we couldn't, they had these blinding images. But then they took it one step further and they said, all right, well, now they're using thermal satellites and our images don't blind those. So what they started doing is they started taking these like black uh, like sheets of tar or almost like uh, shingles like from your roof or something. And they would make shapes on the runway maybe a circle with a line coming in, something really weird and exotic. Mm. And they'd leave it there for a couple hours in the Nevada sun. And then they'd take those in and the thermal things would spot these odd, like, what the hell is that? It's a triangle with two squares next. So now the Soviets are, are, are they're Now they're wasting resources on trying to figure out what is this? It's nothing. It's, it's literally some guys drink and like, not, not exaggerating, drinking and having fun and saying, how can we trick them? Mm. So, but when it comes to world politics, I mean, that's billions of dollars going down, going down dead end roads that does have legitimate effects on geopolitics. So you would imagine, why wouldn't you want someone that is coaching you on how to act? And then, like you said, Mr. President, that's a nervous tick. They're going to know that. Well, you can go even deeper into the shadows and say, Tommy, we're really strong right now. Let's force their hand. I want you to have a nervous tick, you know. I want you to drink these two glasses of espresso. <laughs> so I'm just sitting there right there. But reality, all's good on the home front, and they're like, let's let's push their hand to see if maybe all of a sudden they're going to try to invade Iraq or something. I mean, and it sounds like BS, but when you do get into the rarefied airs of trillion dollar nations, I mean, this is all fair game. Totally. And look, I think that a lot of folks also, you know, have some sophistication about that kind of thing. Um, intuitively, you know, if you go to a car salesman, you know, a used car salesman is going to know a lot of tricks to kind of influence people. And I think a lot of politicians also, you know, if if you take Bill Clinton or any politician who's really charismatic. um, So, but, but I, I think you're pointing out just the power of psychology and, you know, absolutely one would hope that you know, we, we use whatever formal tools that we have in terms of knowledge base and psychiatry and, and behavior and, and how to influence people. And that seems to me very legitimate um, in terms of, you know, uh, foreign policy and so forth. So, um, yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. If, if, if you can't tell, uh, I get, I talk a lot when I get really excited. My head's just spinning with ideas. It's um, to, if we could, go back to what you said about the 25th amendment on how you said it's not you know who is defining what is competent and what is not and how you think it's uh, a misunderstanding of forensic psychiatry yeah could you elaborate on that more sure so you know i think that um i actually wrote an op-ed on this uh but it wasn't published i sent it to the wall street journal but i, I think that um i'll read it i'll send it to you i'll send it to you i think read it. yeah i think part of the reason it wasn't published though uh it, perhaps it wasn't well written but i think part of the reason it wasn't published is that i think no one took her law very seriously this law that nancy pelosi sponsored because they felt it was probably not going to pass so there are probably other things that were more pressing at that time to cover but i, I think the issue with this presidential commission is that 
forensic psychiatry has a lot of gray to it, okay? And so um, there's a lot of nuance very often. Not always, but very often there is a lot of nuance when you're looking at, at a particular case. And that is why forensic psychiatrists tend to disagree, right? They may agree on nine out of 10 factors in a particular case, but the one factor they disagree on might be controlling in terms of coming up with an opinion that for practical purposes, you know, would have different outcomes in a particular case. So, for example, in an insanity evaluation, you know, which is which is like a bread and butter forensic psychiatry type of case. So let's say you have someone who committed a homicide and let's say everyone agrees that the person was psychotic. So this person was hearing voices and the voices were telling him to kill this person. Um, and so everyone agrees the person had schizophrenia, they were hearing voices, they were not in touch with reality. But the law will actually say that in order to find this person insane and not responsible for their crime, uh, they have to lack the capacity to appreciate the nature and consequences of their actions or that their actions were wrong. That's the legal definition in most jurisdictions in the U.S. So you're going to have two psychiatrists that agree on everything about the case, but this critical issue, which actually controls what your opinion is actually going to say is, you know, did those voices and did those false beliefs or that psychosis, was it so strong that the person really didn't understand what they were doing. And that's a very nuanced decision to make. And so frequently forensic psychiatrists disagree, which is why in a, in a case like that, usually you'll have a forensic psychiatrist testifying for the defense and you'll have a forensic psychiatrist testifying for the prosecution. And they're both representing their honest opinion. And I think the beauty of our legal system is that we let the lay person decide. It's actually the experts, not the one who decides. The expert simply gives an expert opinion and the jury, a jury of your peers, they have to listen to all this information and they have to decide based on all the information that they've learned. So I think that, you know, a presidential commission that would just rely on forensic psychiatrists to tell them, you know, whether the president was incapacitated or not, I think would give too much power to the forensic psychiatrists, um, you know, and, and it's a misunderstanding because it's, it's almost looking at forensic psychiatry like a computer program where you put in certain data and it's always going to give you the same result. When actually it's a process of people with a lot of experience, a lot of expertise, but ultimately they have to make a judgment and those judgments can differ. And so, and, and I agree with you that, that I think you mentioned earlier that that could create a lot of controversy about how this decision was reached whether this is really, um, you know, in the national interest or objective, unbiased. Um, so I think that that was, that was my feeling about the commission. I feel like it wasn't really getting how the process usually works in a court of law. I will 100% read, read your read your dissertation. Well, okay. I will 100 <laughs> I, I, I've, I've had on so many authors and a lot of, a lot of them say no one reads. My, I'm like, I love the book, man. I will 100% read it. And I would, I'll thank you. I'll happily do another podcast with you and we can break that down. But that sounds great. I, I still have you for 22 minutes. So I'm going to get the most out of my, my free therapy session. This is all, great. this is all a ploy, Dr. Cohen. I'm just getting, <laughs> I'm just getting free psychiatry because I don't have insurance and I, Jokes on you. Um, so tell me about your mother. Yeah. So, yeah, because you're right. Because, okay, is, is that a national security? Or, I mean, you can, you know, is, is it, well, who's commissioning it? Is it, is it Nancy Pelosi? Does she choose the psychiatrist? 
and in turn, does Trump get to say, well, how do we not know she's insane? Does the whole thing just devolve into politics where it turns into a World War One trench warfare of forensic psychiatrists saying they're crazy? Well, their crazy claim is crazy. And it, we're right back at like the Cold War. Sure. So I, I don't know if you saw that book uh, that came out, I think, very early on in Trump's presidency. It was called something like The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. So this was a book that was edited by a psychiatrist. I, I think she might be forensically trained, but I'm not sure. I think she may just be a general psychiatrist at Yale. And she edited the book. I think she had, she got like 20 to 30 psychiatrists to, to write it with her. And they were essentially making the argument that this was very early on in his presidency, that based on what we knew about Trump, he was not fit to be president, that he was unstable psychiatrically and he was not fit to be president. And I think, you know, the, the, the problem with a, with a book like that, and, you know, I stand to be corrected if I'm saying something that's incorrect factually, but, you know, most psychiatrists are liberal. Most psychiatrists are very liberal. You know, if you poll, you know, the American Psychiatric Association, you're going to find that they're on the liberal side of the spectrum. They're mostly Democrats. So, you know, if, you're, if they're going to take 30 psychiatrists, we're all going to say that Donald Trump is unstable, and we don't know anything about their political persuasion. Yeah. And, it, and you know, psychiatrists are human too. This is not like a forensic case in a court of law where you have an ability to be objective because you're, you're looking at objective data. Um, you know, I think that it, uh, you know, that, that, that book was problematic, you know, in, in a lot of ways to try to take the authority of psychiatry and say that psychiatry authoritatively says that this person yeah. uh, is, is not fit. Um, so I think that's, that's the danger is when psychiatry wades into politics in that way. Yeah. So I, I think that the presidential permission was a little bit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's uh, how, how come, how come Billy gets to be the quarterback? Well, the coach thinks he's the best quarterback. Well, the coach is also Billy's dad. And it's like, right. is exactly. it, you know, is it detached? And it's, yeah, that, that's right. And then, yeah, does does it muddy the waters for when there is an actual? I think uh, I think right. it was in the eighties, an Air Force uh, a missileer at one of the the Minuteman silos just I think posed a question, said, "Obviously, we follow commands. We our jobs to turn the key. How can we trust that the person who gave the command, the commander in chief? How do we know that they're fit for duty?" And he was dishonorably discharged from the military. Again, learn the lesson of, you know, you don't, you don't question. And I, I understand wow. that the necessity for the, you know, the chain of command has to fall. But just that simple, yeah, it was like, don't even question it. And how do we know? And it's, um, so this actually goes in perfectly to a question I had earlier that I just remembered. So it's a gray area. It, you know, what are your political biases? Is it, you know, is it, Dr. Cohen really hates Tommy's podcast. So he, so he writes a, a letter to the, you know, YouTube and says, I just don't think this guy's stable. And it's, and it's, you know, <laughs> but your, whatever, your little brother has a podcast that you want to see succeed. So we don't know that. Is there, or will there be, or is there, and we have yet to find a way to show it, is there quantitative objective data to where, uh, I think you're lying. Well, you're not lying. And then along comes the, you know, the CIA using, um, uh, like lie detectors, right? And okay, your heart's doing right. this or, or, and now you could say fMRIs. Okay. Well, you're bursting these, you know, weird bursts of epinephrine and we know you're doing this. Could, is there eventually going to be a way to decode the objective 
hallmarks of insanity? Could you say a frequency in your voice from here to here, a supercomputer analyzing your face at 10,000 frames a second, these different muscle twitches indicate with 99% certainty homicidal intention? Is there a way to where it could be broken down or are we getting into, you know, trying to turn into a science something like an opinion like what is objectively the best song and it's like you can't be done well i mean it's it's a great question so i think that you know there are types of neuroimaging that are being used even now in ways that you could think of as a kind of prototype or the early days of lie detection so for example we have types of um uh, MRIs, uh, you know, functional MRIs, functional neuroimaging that can look at what part of your brain is activated when you complete a certain task. But so, you know, that's very prosaic. So that started out with, you know, let's say if I ask you to draw a house, you know, what parts of your brain are going to be activated? Or if I show you a picture of a heroin needle and you're a heroin user, what parts of your brain are going to be activated? And that's just interesting because it helps us understand how the brain works, right? But you can use that technology to determine, you know, to determine with some probability whether potentially whether someone is lying, you know, because, you know, you could ask them a question and look at which parts of their brain were activated and you would get a sense where, where were they imagining, um, you know, were they in their visual cortex, did they have an image of a, a chair or did they have an image of a car? You know, there, there are, there are certain kinds of experimental situations where those kinds of things have been, have been elucidated with neuroimaging. So you could imagine that being taken very far in a way where you could put someone in a scanner and ask them a lot of questions and determine with some probability, uh, what's going on in their brain. Um, but you know, that is in, in, in the future. Uh, it's not something that I would expect, you know, even in the next 10 years, um, but the other thing it's important to say about, uh, you know, but I think that there are people who, who have that ambition and I think that, you know, we could well see psychiatry moving in a direction like that in certain contexts. Um, but I, I think the other thing that's important to remember about forensic psychiatry is that we usually deal in probabilities with forensic psychiatry. So, you know, forensic psychiatry, even if I say that that person is legal, was legally insane and should not be held responsible, uh, for their actions, I'm saying it to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. So the question is, well, what is a reasonable degree of medical certainty? Um, and there's no precise definition, but it's definitely not a hundred. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably not even 90. The, the, the best definition that I've heard of reasonable degree of medical certainty is the same medical certainty that I need to actually diagnose and treat someone. So if someone comes to the emergency room and they're hearing voices and they're paranoid and agitated, and their urine toxicology is positive for PCP, you know, I am pretty confident that this person has acute PCP intoxication and I'm going to treat him on that basis. But there is a long list of other possibilities. You know, the PCP positivity could be incidental. So, um, you know, it's more probable than not, or it's the probability to the degree that I'm confident enough to treat the person on that basis. So in forensic psychiatry, if I say... um, in another context, for example, if the court is asking, what's the risk of recidivism in this person? You know, this person committed a sexual assault. What's the risk that this person will commit another sexual assault? So we, so we have a certain methodology to try to answer that question. But really, that methodology is going to tell you whether the, whether the person is high risk, moderate risk, or low risk. 
That's what it's going to tell you. It's not going to tell you with 100% certainty that they are or that they're not going to commit that assault. And so all we can do is provide that information, say, you know, based on my analysis, this would be considered a high-risk person. Ultimately, the court will then have to make a decision, you know, taking into account that expert testimony. So, uh, you know, to kind of get back around to answering your question about, you know, how concrete or how um, scientific can we get, I think at the end of the day, even if we get to the point where we're dealing with neuroimaging, uh, we're really just dealing in probabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think will always be important to explain, um, you know, to courts and to people who use this data, kind of in the same way that when you use uh, DNA evidence uh, in a criminal court, usually the, the, the laboratory scientist spends quite a bit of time explaining to the jury how it works what are the probabilities? What does this mean? Sort of educating the jury. And I think that that's important, you know, in any type of expert testimony. It's like electron cloud psychiatry. It's just all probabilities. <laughs> it's, well, it's mostly this. And it's, you need to know for sure. You know, you can't know for sure. It was, he's mostly a jerk, partially insane, right? It's, yeah, because then it's, who's the, the kid that, um, what was it the uh, the Parkland shooting and like two or three years ago? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that kid that killed seventeen people. And he t- t- takes a video like the morning of, and it's him saying what he's going to do, and he's kind of smirking about it. And but there's also a video of him right after he was detained, and he's in like the jail cell and he's chained to like the floor, and they have a guy go in there and he's talking. And it's like a ten hour video, but he goes mm-hmm. in there and he's talking to him. And you can see him kind of like changing his answers based on like, you see the guy's like, you know, were you hearing voices? And he was like, yeah, he's like, were you hearing one voice or multiple? Like one, we're hearing one or is it two plus? And he goes, just one. And the guy goes, well, well, if it's okay, well, if it's less than two, then it can't be insanity. And like, you might be charged with the death penalty. He was like, actually it was three. And then, so they're going through this whole thing. And then after like an hour, the guy goes like, by the way, like, I'm just a cop. I'm not a psychiatrist. And the kid completely changes again. But it was all about to try to figure out what, what, what was he? What is he about? Um, but- so, yeah, so, so one of the things there is you know, detection of malingering, which is when people are pretending to be crazy or pretending yeah. to have some kind of a mental illness. And that's also, I would say, part of the expertise in forensic psychiatry. We have, you know, different approaches to doing that. Um, um, but it can be challenging at times, you know, it's, it's that, that, that person is a pretty unsophisticated malingerer, you know, the way you're describing him, but, um, you know, sometimes people can be pretty sophisticated about it. So, um, yeah, it can be a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you were like a, you know, like a billionaire doing some fraud or something, you would, you could hire a forensic psychiatrist and be like, coach me to be insane or something. I don't know. Um, now, would there ever is there ever been something like um, like covert forensic psychiatry? Because I can only imagine that there is a placebo effect on am I be, I'm being analyzed now? I got to be this and I got to be that and I got to you know. For me, whenever I was talking to my psychiatrist, the only effect it ever had on me was I could just be even more open. I could dig, and that allowed me to dig deeper than I thought was possible. But let's say it's not it's not this beaut- beautiful. Uh, dispensing of of medical care and upholding your Hippocratic oath, but instead it's are we trying to find a guy? Is this guy can we? Because you know, again, when you get into like a trillion dollar corporation like Amazon or or or, or, or uh, Apple, and they're looking for 
maybe their next CTO or some shit. You wouldn't want to just bring them in and say, here's a forensic psychiatrist and he's going to make sure that you're not like a psychopath who's going to screw over the country because that has now an effect on the guy being analyzed. Is there such, excuse me, forensic or sorry, covert forensic psychiatry? Would it just be he doesn't know he's being looked at, but all of a sudden there's a new guy in my country club named Dr. Zeev Cohen and uh, yeah, I know he's an orthopedic surgeon and uh, he's always in the sauna the same time I am. He's a cool guy. We've been hitting up in reality. You're, you're getting him and his guards down or you wouldn't even be Dr. Zeev Cohen. You just pick like, what's up, man. I'm Zeev. I'm the janitor. Just, you know, like, yeah, I know. So it's, it's a great question. Um, so, you know, forensic psychiatrists, we, we, you know, we, we are physicians. And so in that regard, we're bound by the Hippocratic oath. So we have certain um, okay. ethics now, Actually, what I said is not completely true. Physicians are bound by the Hippocratic Oath. Forensic psychiatrists, um, traditional medical ethics don't always work well in the forensic setting. For example, traditional med- medical ethic- ethics say, uh, do no harm. You know, first do no harm. But if I'm evaluating someone, uh, let's say to see, say if he's competent to be executed. Um, so in the U.S., you actually have to be competent to be executed. You can't execute an insane person. That's unconstitutional according to the Supreme Court. So if I'm evaluating someone and I find that he's competent to be executed, I'm harming him, mm-hmm. right? He's going to be executed because I found him competent. So the traditional medical ethics, which include, you know, do no harm, beneficence, that is do good, um, and so forth, those medical ethics don't work well in forensic psychiatry. So we have a different set of medical ethics, uh, or a different set of forensic ethics that we use. But one of the components that we do adhere to is autonomy which means informed consent. So we're not, uh, we're, we don't examine people without their consent. Now, there are some exceptions to that, but they're rare. So you wouldn't really have a forensic psychiatrist be like a case officer and, you know, gleaning information. Now, a forensic psychiatrist could rely on that data, though. Okay. So let's say, let's say if um, Apple, you know, has spies who are spying on Jeff Bezos, and then they, okay. you know, for some reason can convince Jeff Bezos to sit for an examination. The forensic psychiatrist could look at all that spy data and keep it in mind when they're asking Jeff Bezos questions, or conceivably they could look at that data without having an opportunity to talk to, to, talk to Jeff Bezos, but try to just give the best, you know, assessment that they can based on various intelligence data that's available. Uh, but we're not supposed to, you know, uh, deceive um uh, deceive the people that we're evaluating. So, um, you know, one area, this is slightly different, but it, I think it will be interesting for your listeners. So, for example, after 9-11, there were enhanced interrogation techniques that mm-hmm. were used on, on uh, terrorism suspects, Taliban and, and Al-Qaeda. And psychologists were very much involved in developing those enhanced interrogation techniques. Yeah, and if, hey, you're smiling... Right? Yeah, right, right. Two, Here's my, two famous doctors, right? Right. Well, they were psychologists. They were not physicians. Yeah. And as you're probably aware, they were censured. Um, so the, and in fact, um, you know, the American Psychological Association came under some uh, disrepute or got bad press because it was felt that they were allowing their members to essentially engage in torture in training, uh, you know, intelligence personnel about how to torture detainees and that, you know, psychologists are part of the healing arts. So there was an argument that that's not really ethical for psychologists to be doing that. So thankfully the American Psychiatric Association um, 
was sort of ahead of the curve on that. And they very early on after 9-11 said that it's not ethical for physicians to be involved in interrogations. We're not even supposed to be present in interrogations. So, you know, I think these kinds of ethics, they put some limitation on forensic psychiatrists, but I think in the long run, it's good for the profession. Um, and so it means that when you're operating as a forensic psychiatrist, you always have to ask yourself, what, what are the ethical boundaries of what I'm doing? Um, you know, cause that's, that's important. Yeah. I mean, who would be able to, who would be able to, to con- construct a better torture method than someone who understands the working of the mind. But then, right. but then you get into that real, that real hazy area of, of the greater good. And could you say, yeah, you're supposed to do no harm, but you know, you're in New York. Maybe that maybe today is September 12th, 2001. And the CIA goes, do you want to come help build our torture program? And you're going, hell yeah. I mean, maybe it's, but you do have those conflicting interests, right? When, when the Mossad kidnapped Adolf Eichmann from South America, the, right. the, 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 what is it? The, the guy who, he, there's a famous term for him. It's whatever it was, right. but he, he basically was the, uh, the mastermind. Wasn't he the holo- the mastermind? Yeah, of the Holocaust. He basically, yeah. yeah, he, there's a word I'm missing. I'm just having a brain fart. It's not important. He constructed the entire, like, how should the final solution be, be carried mm-hmm. out? And when he was brought back, I don't know if you've ever read that story about how the Mossad kidnapped him. It's insane. But they brought him back to Israel. And you can find the images of him when he's on trial. He's in this like bulletproof cube. And there's right. guards on the outside and guards on the inside. Those guards had to be cleared by the Mossad to make sure they lost no immediate or extended family members in the Holocaust. Because mm. they didn't want a guard turning and just blowing his brains out. Mm. And that's kind of the antithesis of what I was saying is that would be the opposite, right? If maybe the psychiatrist could, you know, could consciously clear you for a CIA program, if you didn't lose anyone in 9-11 versus you're hot under the collar and it's the next day and you're going rah, rah, let's do it. Yeah. And then I, I don't know. And then it's the CIA. They'd be like, no, we want the angry one. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're there to apply pressure. So, um, yeah, I don't know. We're kind of getting off into the weeds. Real quick, last last question, and then yeah. um, and then I'll email you because I do want to do another one with you. I want to read your op ed. Sure, yeah. So, so like I taught myself graphic design several years ago, and now whenever I look at stuff, I notice kind of I almost can't enjoy other things because I look at it. And I'm like, oh, that part's pixelated, or I'm like, wow, that's really good. That guy, whatever, just you know, mm-hmm. like a real snooty asshole, right? Just like mm-hmm. this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. Or when I listen to YouTube videos now, I'm like, that guy's got great audio. He's got these things. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. Can you ever turn it off? Or, or when you're, I, I imagine in your mind, it, this is why I'm not a psychiatrist. I imagine it's probably like Iron Man. He's got like the heads up display, you know, it's analyzing everything. When you talk to anyone like me, can is it just subconscious? Do things start just like popping up like this, this, that, where you may not even be intending to? Like, can you turn it off? Or, you know, I think it's a great question. And I think exactly like what you said with, you know, graphic design, I think anyone who sort of develops a certain expertise in something, um, you know, there's some automatic thinking and pattern recognition that's happening either out of your awareness or in your awareness. So I think that it probably is always a little bit in the background, but you know, you try to have a sense of humor about it and, 
and uh, you know, not read too much into things. Um, like if your neighbor is doing something that's annoying you, and I'll start profiling your neighbor and saying, you know, he's a sociopath. You know, that's why he's doing that. But um, but yeah, I think it, in a way it kind of enriches your life, you know, because it gives you a way of looking at you know the people you know and the things you experience. Um, but always taking it with a big grain of salt and a lot of uh, humility because. You know, there are things that we know, but there's a lot that we don't know. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, I've had some Delta Force guys on my show before, and I actually, wow. I was actually had the the uh, well, and they worked for the CIA, and they they talk about the background checks and the forensic stuff they do on them. But I, I remember asking them, I was like, I had the I had the the pleasure of meeting them and go to like a shooting range, and of course, you know, these guys are like most secret service guys, I could be wrong, are like ex Delta force. These guys are the tip of the, and then it's me like, yeah, pull the trigger. Right. And there's, you know, right. hold it sideways. And they're like, no. And, but I remember asking them, I'm like, can you guys like turn it off? Like, do you at all times are you, and they're like, it's sec- like without even thinking about it, if you just watch their eyes, if you talk to them, they're never just always, yeah. it's just looking every couple seconds, looking at like the woods, looking at like tree lines, looking at, and I'm like, that's now again, I'm sure to them it's reflexive, whereas, but it's almost like you can't turn it off. But yeah, I guess you're right, right? You can't, you're there in a bathrobe with coffee looking through your blinds and you're like, he's, he's mowing his lawn for the third time today. And you know, your wife's just like, <laughs> get back in bed. And you're like, you're like, this is a, he's a Russian psycho. And you're like, all right, honey. All right. Um, but, but, but I think you're with these Delta Force guys. I think you're touching on two really good things. One is training, right? So training really, it trains you. It turns on certain behaviors in you that are difficult to turn off. They become habitual. And that's the purpose of training. And Delta Force people definitely have that, you know, to, to the T. Um, but then also, of course, you know, it makes me think about PTSD. So I've, sure. I've, I've evaluated a lot of veterans and I, you know, was in the Israeli military actually as a psychiatrist. You are? Yep. That's badass, man. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but so, you know, I mean, it makes me think a lot about PTSD when I hear a guy who's, you know, just standing on the corner of his neighborhood and he can't stop scanning the environment. It makes me think about someone who was, you know, blown up in Iraq or yeah. something like that. And, uh, yeah. you um, know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. real quick to, to t- touch on that. I remember asking them. Right. And they actually said, they said, no, guys in their field, they don't have PTSD because he goes, we go out in the middle of the night, he goes, we're the predators versus if you're just a soldier on patrol day in and day out for 300 days and you never know when the IED is going off. Those are the guys with PTSD. And they said they feel for them. They said what we do, they go, no, they sleep like a baby. They're just a different machine. But um, uh, yeah, I think it was episode 18 or 19. This is episode 479. So like right. 18 or 19, I actually had on an individual from... Is it, is it Syaret? S-A-Y-E-R-E-T? Syaret from the Syaret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had him on. He had on, a, he had on a mask. He like sent me like his like passport. He was like, I can't show you who I am. And I was like, I don't care, man. It's whatever. But uh, right. yeah, that was one of the most fascinating guys I've ever talked to. You were in the Israeli imagine. military? Yep. That's so cool, man. That's so Thanks. badass. Yeah. Yeah. That is, dude. That's that's badass. Well, I mean, it was as a psychiatrist, so you know, I'm not not claiming that I was uh, doing what the guy in the Sayeret does, but it was definitely very enlightening, very interesting. I learned a lot. You know, it was cool, and I think very good training to be a forensic psychiatrist. Yeah, but, what uh, what better training would there be? Yeah, right. And, exactly. And, and nonsense. I assume that you are a sniper who also flew fighter jets, <laughs> and, and I'll hear I'll hear nothing less. Um, <laughs> okay. It's 3.02. I kept you two minutes past, so I am a liar and cannot be trusted. Dr. Zeev Cohen, 
Thank you so much, sir. That was a fascinating conversation. You are light years more intelligent than I, so I apologize if I was rambling on like an idiot, and I will do it again. And um, please do email me that op-ed. I would love to read it, and I'll uh, we can get back together. And I don't know, just no, it doesn't matter when. I'll email you. We can set it up. But thanks, Sounds man. Great. Thank you so yeah, much for coming for on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks yeah, for man. This conversation thank, it was thank, a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for giving me an hour of your time, dude. I, I sincerely appreciate it. You also need to write a book, but um. I'll email you that. I'll work on it. Yeah, we'll, we'll work on that. All right, man. Take care. <laughs> okay, you Stay too. Safe, Take everybody. it easy. Recording yep. stopped. Peace.